one of the biggest things I bring with me is a simple and guided way to look each other in the eyes and stop beating around the bush. And just to be really honest and, and to create just enough framing in terms of we don't have to be super emotional. We don't need to cry and all this stuff. But you know what? We do need to learn how to be a little more uncomfortable in our interactions with each other and say what really needs to be said. Welcome to The Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Today on TDW, I am honored to have my dear friend and mentor, Dan Doty, on the show. Dan is a men's work leader, an executive coach, a writer, a somatic meditation teacher, and a wilderness guide. He helped to instigate and lead the current global men's movement by founding Everyman, one of the largest men's organizations and communities for transformational change and growth, and more recently launched Fatherhood Unlocked, a platform to help men authentically embrace their roles as family men and fathers. Overall, Dan has more than 15,000 hours participating in leading men's healing work with thousands of men and also leading retreats, often guiding people to the wilderness as a place for healing. In his storied career, Dan has also directed and produced more than 50 episodes of the hit hunting show Meat Eater, worked as an inner city high school teacher, and given talks around the world on masculinity, fatherhood, and spirituality. So before we dive in, I want to give you just a brief backstory on how I met Dan. So a few years ago, I did a weekend men's retreat with our good friend, Andrew Horn, a mutual friend of ours called Junto, that was using gestalt therapy to ultimately lead men through healing and really unlocking the best version of themselves. I then started a men's group in New York City with Danny Patka, who went to Junto with me and who has since gone on to become a terrific men's coach in his own right. And it was the 10 of us meeting regularly. And for the first year, we used the Everyman framework. So, you know, I go online for prompts and I'd see this kind of intense dude talking about prompts, how to create containers for men. And it looked a little bit like Paul Bunyan with a crew cut. And I felt like he'd chopped a, an enormous amount of wood and lived in the forest. And he's dropping all this wisdom and just said whatever was on his mind. And there was also a deep confidence and vulnerability that was really powerful and unique to me at that time that I recognized in Dan. I had the good fortune then to become part of his very first Fatherhood Unlocked program in 2021, which was absolutely incredible. Now, Dan, on your website, you write, I want you to live with unconditional confidence and be blindingly alive. And having the pleasure to call you as a friend and teacher, that absolutely gels with my experience of watching you help wake men up and really invite them into their fullness. And it's been just so inspiring. So with that big intro behind us, it is so great to see you, man. And welcome to our show. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Alex. I'm excited to be here. That was the best intro that I've ever been given. Uh, and I, and I, I'm, am I really intense? I'm just kidding. No, <laughs> I wanted, I wanted to uh, pretend that I wasn't intense for a few seconds when you were reading and then, and then it's just not true. So, all right. <laughs> 
Well, the, the great thing about you, it's funny because Nate was asking, he's like, because Nate wasn't really familiar with your work and I was kind of introducing him to it. And he said, so is he in the men's work world kind of a, a get naked in the woods and howl at the moon kind of guy? <laughs> or is he more of the spiritual, emotional, love yourself, embrace your trauma? You know, I'm here and I'm going to sort of hold you through it. And I said, he's, he's actually both. <laughs> He's actually both, which is really so cool. And I, I yeah. think was kind of surprised by that answer. I said, you know, he really has these beautifully integrated pieces of himself that are woven together that are demanding of people to stop playing small and to, to step into their fullness and at the same time, you know, to give us a hug as we do that. Yeah, fair. Fair enough. Uh, I, I, I concur. <laughs> <laughs> We are here, Dan, to talk about men and men in the workforce. And I want to frame this with some stats. So the Census Bureau has identified 7.2 million men who have disappeared from the workforce. And there's a growing narrative where uh, different media outlets and experts are trying to fight, figure out what, what, why are these people dropping out of the workforce? What is it? Now, what's interesting is Alex and I researched the heck out of this. There's no less than 15 reasons that people are identifying as why these men who are of prime working age, that means between 25 and 54, are, have just not come back to work. And so there's obviously something behind this, but some of the big uh, pieces are around, there's a lot that's changed, not only like pandemic related and work related, but the cultural norms, social constructs, not as many people are getting married. Uh, they're choosing not to have kids. Men don't feel as their social status is as high. You know, there are other things like uh, it's a, there's a very clear connection or correlation to having a college degree. Men who don't have a college degree are more likely to disappear from the workforce. And, and without going into all 15 of those, we want to start to ask this question about what do you think is going on with millions of men choosing not to re-enter the workforce. I would add one thing to that data point, Nate, if you don't mind, which is that some media outlets were saying, hey, a lot of these men are becoming stay-at-home dads, but that is not correct. Only 250,000 of the 7.1 million are actually becoming stay-at-home dads. The rest of them are not working or not looking for a job. Wow. So I, I have three bullets, which I'm curious if they line up or at least play into any of the, the reasons that, that your research showed you. Uh, and these are in no particular order. But the first that I would, would name, you know, just culturally and individually, there's, there's this reality that there's this extended adolescence. Our lives right now today, you know, we can go many, many, many decades uh, without growing up, right? Without committing to work, committing to a family, committing to anything really in, in general. And I would say what I've noticed is there is, you know, since the pandemic, but even before it, there's almost like a hyperextended adolescence possible, right? You can literally go through your whole life without committing to what we would traditionally understand as, uh, you know, a, a mature manhood, right? And so I think that that is conditionally that true, right? It's conditionally true that some of those normal things that sort of focus a man into, into something different aren't necessary. So that's, that's one. I'll just put that out there. And the second two are 
these are all interrelated, but the second two I want to put out is, is, is first is, is just a sense of missing identity, right? Uh, I, I feel like there's fracturing of all things, all things, right? Economy, nature, geography, uh, understanding of the world, trust in our institutions, gender, roles in the family, everything is fracturing, right? And has been fracturing and seems to continue to be fracturing. And so amidst that, you see men scrambling and grasping for new identities. And it seems like as they grasp, there's not much purchase there, or there is, but it all seems to be somewhat desperate. And so in the midst of everything that's going on, there's very little to fall back on. It's just like, okay, well, even in the midst of all this chaos, here is who I am, right? And that's, that's fundamentally arresting, right? That's fundamentally challenging for anyone. The third one, which is completely tied in here, is a fracturing or understanding of, of meaning. And I mean that with a capital M, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, just having a sense of purpose and meaning in life, which again has to do, I would, I would argue, has to do with both identity and stages of life, such as this extended adolescence, right? So if you think about it historically, at least in the last hundred plus some years in North America, this culture that we inhabit, meaning often came from having children or a career or a hobby passion, you know, some, some sort of external thing. And there's, there's something happening now where I think because or as a part of this larger chaos, men are, uh, at least in my little bubble, looking inward for meaning, looking for more uh, deeper or more universal truths as meaning rather than these things which you can't hold on to anymore. So mm. I know I just kind of said a mouthful there, but identity, extended adolescence, and, and just interruption in the normal phases of life and lack of meaning was what I would put out first, um, sort of like the underneath layer of things that are going on. I want to grab onto the meaning one, and I want to take that and see if I can extend it, see if you'll buy onto this theory. So in doing this research, I noticed that who my dad was and who his father was is very, very different than who I am today. And so I was kind of reflecting like the, the framework that I was consciously and unconsciously handed is not the framework that I'm living at all. The, the playbook is way different now. When normally, you know, people look for that model of, well, you know, through my lineage, who are these men? And when I look at that model now, it's in, in many ways unrecognizable. And that doesn't mean my dad was an amazing dad at all. It's just the way that he went about being a man is very, very different than who I am today. I mean, yeah, I, I completely buy in to, to what you're sharing. And this is something that I go into very explicitly when I work with folks. And I, I think it's very, very helpful to get a clear snapshot of, of our father's generation or mother's, you know, the, the one-up generation and then and beyond. And, and taking that perspective if, if there's one uh, virtual reality thing that, that I would love to do one day, it would be somehow plug in to an app and sit down at a table and have a conversation with my father when he was 40 and my grandfather when he was 40 and my great grand And it's like, holy crap, what, yeah, we would learn so much <laughs> yeah. from that, right? Um, but what I would tag on to what you're saying here is, I think it seems to me the gulf between generations this might not be accurate, but it seems to be widening. 
And now I'm a father of three young ones. And as I look to the next generation, I literally can't conceive of what their reality is. Like I try every day to conceive of what their world is going to look like. And I think part of the reason it's hard is because it doesn't look very pretty and I don't want to face that. Yep. But, but the truth, the truth is that it seems to me like, I don't know, it's almost like there's just, there's so much distance. It's just, it's just kind of like goes out into nothingness. That's uh, a little esoteric, but yeah, it's, it's intense. It's really intense. It's very, I very much agree with what you shared. I think that pluralism is really important. I've had that conversation with my boys and I've said to them, the world that you will grow up in will be markedly different than the world that I grew up in. And my world has been fundamentally different than the world my dad grew up in. And all of that is happening at the fastest pace in human history. Yes, 100%. 100%. How old are yours, Nate? How old are your kids? Nine and 11. Yeah. Well, I wonder if this is true for, for both of you, but I recognize at times that I'm, I'm really trying to keep it in mind consistently that the world is different now and it will be different in the future. But I, but I also catch myself kind of like leaning back on what I was taught as a kid, mm-hmm. right? Just that, I mean, man, all I actually need to do is make sure my kids go to college and then blank and then blank. And I'm like, well, hold on. You know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that even means. I don't know what that'll mean in 10 years, let alone 20 years from now. So it's interesting. It's, it's hard to update our thought patterns, I believe, and our parenting styles with this rapid increase. And I, and I think, you know, it just feels kind of like holding on for dear life in a sense and just trying to stay current and relevant is takes a lot of energy. I love what you said earlier about the, the three things, um, sort of the extended adolescence, the lack of meaning and this disruption of identity. The, the identity piece is something that you and I have talked about, Dan, that Nate and I talk a lot about on the show that is AI and technology and the way we work continues to change at such a rapid pace that a lot of people are going to get stuck. And that's, that's why we're here. That's why we do this work is we want to prevent as many people as possible from feeling like they're stuck or feeling like they don't have options. But we think at the same time that those numbers of people who struggle with identity at work and finding their place in their career and moving forward in their work and life, it's, it's, we, we think those numbers are going to go up um, because of how fast things are changing. So calling out how much men need a sense of meaning, how much we need a sense of identity, and that you know, we need to step through these phases of life into the next phase of life. And I know one of the things that you do is write the passage, which is in maybe not entirely dedicated to, but partially dedicated to growing through these phases of our life and helping people kind of step into a more uh, advanced or responsible version of themselves, as it were. Well, that's a great point, Alex. I mean, you know, as you say that uh, our culture is fairly weak on the rites of passage front, formally, right? We don't have ceremonies. I mean, we have some things, right? Depending on, on your background and your culture, maybe you have a bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, or you have your graduation from high school, and maybe some families have something. So, so it's not a complete desolate wilderness, but generally speaking, it's pretty weak. And I believe that sort of informally, what took the place of that in a sense, and I don't think in a very fulfilling way, was going to college or just this concept. And like, now I'm a college person and people know me as a college person. And now I got my first job and now I'm, you know, blank, blank. And 
Now, with that going away, I think it, it leaves an even bigger void for our own recognition of, of who we are at this stage of life that we are. The thing that I'm curious, so, so I'm imagining 7.2 million men, right? What are they doing? I don't mean that in the big sense. I mean that on a day-to-day sense. Like, what's going on? Are we, are we playing video games? Are we working out? Are we listening to Joe Rogan over and over? Like, what are we doing? I'm just curious. And this kind of leads to one of, I think, where some of my work is going toward, which is this possibility. Like, what if we could mobilize 7.2 million men to do something of value to serve each other in the world where we like, I just, I see men in general as having, as one of the largest untapped resources for uh, good, for energy, for, for possibility that, you know, you know, so, so that's 7.2 men, million men, we don't know what they're doing, but all the, a lot of the other men I've worked with, and I've worked with thousands of men uh, at this point, there's, there's just so much realistic goodness they could be bringing into the world. And I don't mean to make this too esoteric. I, I mean, in a, in a role at an organization that's doing something positive for the world, for their children, right? So, so I mean both macro and micro here. I, I love the intention of how do we mobilize them in a different way. And it actually does dovetail into something that I wanted to talk about, which is you are a bit of a Swiss army knife of transformation. You have a lot of different tools that you that are at your disposal that you're really really good at. And one of the things that that struck me a lot on your website is something that seemed new to me is you wrote this beautiful piece where you said, we live in boxes, we work in boxes, we drive boxes to other boxes, our food comes in boxes, we look at screens, talk into screens, listen to screens. We live in boxes and screens and we're sick and sad and scared and barely alive. The archetype of the wild man has nothing to do with boxes or screens. The wild man in each of us animates and brings us to life. To the wild man, life is beautiful and rich and pulsating with energy. So as I said in the intro, a lot of your work revolves around waking men up and inviting them into their fullness and demanding that they stop playing small. What the heck is a wild man? And what happens to men when our primal nature is denied? Let me tell you what it actually looks like and where I learned about it. So my my first real career, I was a wilderness therapy guide, you know, young men in my early 20s and found myself leading programs for young men who were struggling, adolescents and young adult men who were addicted or violent or just, you know, not fitting in and causing problems. And it was really where my entire career began for many reasons. But in terms of the wild men, what, what I what I found was very natural and organic in the sense of after about four or five days of hiking and carrying packs and squatting around fires and drinking out of streams and, you know, no cars, no anything. I just, I remember when it started happening and still happens today, I remember waking up and feeling what felt like five to 10 times more energy than I was normally used to, right? Just this sense of like, I mean, part of it maybe was just you know being young and 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 that, but but I but I think that's only a small part of it actually. It's just this sense of my body and my mind being balanced and in sync with a with a, a bit more of a natural way of being, and along with that was 
in these little communities and these little groups I'd lead, you know, we, we literally, our point was to connect and build healthy relationships, healthy communication practices. And so I feel like I was, I was just kind of thrust or I stumbled into these scenarios, which maybe, maybe approximated a more natural way of living for conditions for a human. And it just liberated. It liberated so much. It liberated my energy. I had massive amounts of energy and creativity and compassion and care. And, and so what I've learned is that that is, it's actually not that far underneath the surface. And it's something that like in, in a workshop or in something, we can actually call that out of us. This, this just like, hold on, I don't need to crunch myself into this tiny concept of who I am and what's going on. It's just this like, this like, whoa, there is way more going on. Hold on, I'm a part of that. I can actually feel that. I can actually sense that. And so I think that's one way to talk about what I'm calling the wild man in this, in this context. It is, it is a more raw and pure experience of being alive that is far less conceptual and is not hemmed in uh, by all these boxes and screens that we talked about, right? And so your, your last sentence in question there, so, so I don't remember the exact wording, but, but what are we missing if we don't have access? Is that close, Alex? Is that what are we, what happens to us when this primal nature is denied? I mean, we're seeing it. We're walking it out every day. 7.2 million men are, and I mean, there's it's a complex thing. So I'm not trying to say that the wild man would bring all 7.2 million men of these back or that they're even just 7.1. Just 7.1. Um, but going back to what I shared about identity and meaning, and I, I guess I hope this is concrete enough language and may, means something. And I'm, and I'm sure that you've both had moments or periods of your life where, where, where something wakes up, right? So, something wakes up that is not beaten down. So, something that can kind of burn through the, all of the labor and the stress and the, everything that life has. But you're, I mean, you could call it a million things, you know, your spirit, your, your, and what, whatever it is. And um, so I think we all know exactly what it looks like when that's not happening. It, because I think it's pretty ubiquitous, unfortunately. But we can notice when we walk into a space or a room or an engagement or whatever with somebody that has more of their light shining through, right? That's pretty obvious. I was resonating the entire time. And the word that is coming up for me is awake. And here's what I mean by that. Contrast that with being asleep. And I, even when I've been in great roles, making great money, my career is growing really well. I, it's entirely possible that I'm asleep because I'm going through the motions, doing my thing. It's very rote. And then when I get into nature, which I'm, I live in Colorado and I'm in love with nature, I awaken and I have to be awake because it's nature and I have to navigate all kinds of cool things that I'm in love with. And also very mindful and respectful of the mountains will kill you if you don't pay attention to them, you know? And so I think I climb and I summit 14ers and I snowboard and I mountain bike and I hike because it shakes me awake. And I can feel myself coming back into something that feels a lot more natural and real. And I know if I stay in this rote machine, I will start to go to sleep and I have to pop myself out of that. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's exactly it. We know um, that you are passionate about and big into coaching. Coaching is having a heyday right now. More than ever, 
organizations are turning to coaching. And it used to be that only leaders got coaching. And often it was more like, hey, you're broken. I'm going to bring in a coach to fix you. And the paradigm has shifted to coaching helps everybody. We, we need to start offering coaching to everybody, not punitive coaching, but let's help you become the best version of yourself. And all of us will get better, all boats will rise kind of a thing. But you have a 90-day program for leaders who want to lead with clarity, precision, and love, which is a wonderful pairing of words. Love that you even have love in the offering of those three words. What are some of the key lessons that you've learned that leaders and executives should be aware of? And then also, just has it changed? Seems like the world's changed a lot. Leadership seems like it's changing a lot. Are you seeing things change on that front? Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing things change. Uh, so, you know, the the initial bulk of my experience in my work was, you know, with with, first of all, young men then young men and their fathers, and then started working with men specifically. And then about eight years ago now, I parlayed that into a coaching career, an executive coaching career specifically. And uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is that the skill sets that I bring to the table, 95% of it is exactly the same from a, from a, a work context and a non-work context. The... It would also, and this is this would also be true that ninety five percent of the skill sets that I would apply has nothing to do with gender and has nothing to do with context. For the most part, what what I've learned and what I'm practicing is really just simple, fundamental human how humans work. It's 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 human work, right? And so the the really the core. I guess I'll describe you know one of my f- favorite ways to work. In the in the professional sphere and executive sphere, leadership space is um, is team alignment, right? And so whether that's founders who need to tune up and be able to see and hear and understand each other, or their teams, I get really excited with really complicated interpersonal. <laughs> I mean, this gets kind of messed up, but I get especially lit up and excited when there's a hard interpersonal issue that is blocking the organizational function, right? And so what those words you said, clarity, love precision, right? So here's part of what I found is that oftentimes what blocks work to be done is the subconscious beefs we have with ourselves and others. It's not always the case. You know, sometimes you just need a better spreadsheet. But generally speaking, team function, organizational function really often comes down to the people in it and how much friction is being caused and, and how much energy can run through through the through the interpersonal space there. So the uh, what I get really excited about is that, at least in certain quadrants, but it actually it seems to be spreading out. Um, organizations are aware that there's this deeper human part of work, right? And there's these deeper human needs, and and I think the pandemic spiked this for everybody. But um, one of the biggest things I bring with me is a simple and guided way to look each other in the eyes and stop beating around the bush. And just to be really honest and, and to create just enough framing in terms of we don't have to be super emotional. We don't need to cry and all this stuff. But you know what? We do need to learn how to be a little more uncomfortable in our interactions with each other and say what really needs to be said, say what we really feel, be willing to be heard, be willing to give feedback, be willing to receive feedback. That type of skill set to be able to speak with candor and care and, and take risks in that way. It's, it's really a, a massive leverage point. It's, it's a huge leverage point. 
And when I, when I get to work with leaders or I get to work with a crew of people that's willing, willing to go there, whether out of desperation or just out of good intentions, it is, it is a beautiful process because what it does is it, it infuses work culture where we spend, as one of my close friends and coach, Sheree Healy says, I don't remember how many freaking tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of hours, right? We spend most of our life at work. Let's be honest about it, right? But, but when, when we can have really functional ways to bring our humanity more into that fold, it not only feels better, but, and this is kind of what I was leaning on earlier about our creative capacity just jumps through the roof when we're actually connected with other people, right? I think one of the fallacies, both for men, but also in the workplace, is this sort of lone wolf mentality that I have to figure it out. I got to know the answers. I got to all of this like little island mentality. And, you know, I'm not saying there's nothing positive about that. There's cases and, and use cases where that's appropriate, right? We need to be resilient and we need to be able to figure things out. But on a whole, Humans are wired to be to work together, to survive and to thrive together, and so that's my that's some of my passion in in that world. And and it's and you know it's fun not only to work with you know like tech companies and you know sort of modern with it people, but also to do this work in industries which you might think um, would be old school or old fashioned or blue collar or you know center of the country. It's just really really gratifying to bring more humanity into those spaces. I love that. I want to switch gears for a sec. I want to talk about something that stuck with me from Fatherhood Unlocked. And one of the things that you said pretty early on in our cohort is you said that life will always be a roller coaster and that most men fantasize about this mythical period of time when it's going to get easier. Life's just going to get easier. But the reality is that Sustainable balance really is a myth. The ups and downs of life are constant and we better get used to it. So in sort of a quick practical way, how do you suggest that men begin to handle burnout and overwhelm, to handle the, the roller coaster, if you will, and not feel like they have to choose between work and family or work and relationship or work and something else when they reach that overwhelm point? Yeah, I think this is front and center for most of the men in my life, uh, and myself, and myself as well. Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 a continual. It's a practice, right? So maybe that's the quick, dirty answer to start. Is that I think if you take it on as a practice and not as a problem to solve, that sort of maybe alleviates some of the shame that we could get into thinking that we're screwing it up, we're not doing it well enough, right? You know, there's a couple people I look to in my life. One is. Uh, the CEO of a, of a consulting firm that I've been working for for a long time. And uh, his name is Matt. And he has, you know, he's got a big job, influential job, a bunch of kids, got a farm, a bunch of hobbies. He runs, you know, he runs, uh, what are they called? The 100 mile races, you know? So he, he's somehow getting it all in. Yeah, he's an ultra runner. He's getting it all in. And, and I, I remember I, I asked him how and like, what did he do? What, how did he figure it out? And, I don't remember his exact answer, but what I got from it was clear. And it was an in intense amount of intentionality, right? Like a lot of being on top of, of all of the things and really making the space and the room to pay attention and plan, be proactive and put intention into each part of his life. And, you know, it's a big transition. Again, so I'm sort of speaking 
with the idea of fatherhood in the picture here now. And I know that's not always the case, so I don't want to over-index on that. But, but if it is between, you know, work and family and self and relationship and hobbies and, and all these things, like it really is, there's a, there's a logistical problem there, right? Like it, it really is hard to, to get it all in. But what I have found is two things. I'll give two quick answers. One is that um, whatever sort of minimal viable dose of inner workout, right? meditation, men's group, therapy, whatever it is to kind of keep your inner self flowing and moving seems to be a pretty critical uh, piece of the whole pie, right? If you only do yeah. the external world, you get gunky, things happen, and it's hard to make everything roll. So, so I also think it's, it's possible to over-index on the inner, right? If you do 10 men's groups and three, three you know, you, you can go too far. So I always think, well, what's the minimal viable dose to keep myself healthy internally and to keep growing? And then the second one is just this layer of intentionality. And, and I think one practical way to do that is just get really, really, really calendar-oriented and keep priorities in mind, right? So I, I keep on the side of my screen here, you know, what are my family priorities? What's my health priority? What's my work priority? And my work one is ballooned, right? It's bigger in terms of stuff and it seems to have more going on because of that. But, and I don't even have this nail. I'm not perfect at this. But when I look at my week, when I look at my month, when I look at my year, it seems to me the further out I can plan, the more sort of general piece that comes. Inner work is uh, synonymous with self-care. Hey, I just got to take care of me and make sure I'm nurturing me. Otherwise, I, you know, my cup's empty and I can't get. Possibly, but possibly not. What I mean here would be if you are still emotionally an adolescent and you're trying to live this fully adult life, you're going to struggle. If you're spirit, if you're spiritually stunted and not paying attention to that. um, So I think self-care can mean a lot of different things, right? Self-care can be, you know, a trip to the gym, which can also just be this rote normal thing, right? So I guess, I guess if I were to try to put a, a sharper, uh, sense on what I'm talking about. It's it's uh, it's the uncomfortable, let's say, psychological, emotional, spiritual inner landscape uh, that most of the time goes less addressed by men than the rest of things. That's a great distinction. You recently shared a post about being 19 on John's pig farm, shoveling pig shit, <laughs> and. You had this experience, it illuminated something for you, uh, between, the difference between suffering and discomfort. And it, it's, it's an important thing that you learned there. And Alex and I are huge proponents and advocates of this idea of getting out of your comfort zone. The best version of you is on the other side of that mountain. You're going to have to face these things if you want to become the best version of you. So talk to us about the difference between suffering and discomfort and those labels that we choose. Well, it's just coming to me right now that my work with John on the pig farm, may he rest in peace, uh, was a rite of passage. Very clear rite of passage for me, but informal, right? So he didn't, certainly didn't ever use that, that term or that phrase. But, uh, you know, a little context, my summer job for a couple of years was I worked for this uh, field crew um, at the university who was breeding, uh, basically, <laughs> well, they were engineering breeds of barley and wheat to sell to beer companies. That, that's what it was. And, but our job was very simple. We took shovels and hoes and rakes out to this giant field and we pulled weeds all day, all summer long. But my boss was John Weersman and he had a hobby farm. And so he 
he picked me and a couple other buddies, but I was his main guy. I'd go after work, I'd go on weekends and do extra work for cash for him. And it was backbreaking, you know? And I'm, I'm like, I was a football, a lineman, football player, big dude, you know, fairly naturally strong. And, you know, we would saw rough oak and, and screw together pig pens. We would literally dig giant boulders out of the earth with pry bars. We would, but the main event was always cleaning the barn. And it was a big barn. And uh, depending on how long it had been since we cleaned it last time, you know, it was five to eight hours of shoveling, scraping and shoveling nonstop. And uh, that's a lot of work. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's a real substantial amount of physical work. That's and, a lot of, that's a lot of odor too. Oh my, yeah. Yeah. So let's just talk about, let's talk about discomfort from all of, yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it's not a pleasurable experience to do this, right? That, you know, the lesson that I took out of here was how to work, you know, how to really work, how to give, how to just give in all the way to work and put myself toward a task. So in that, somehow in that transition of giving into it, to me, delineates the difference between suffering and I mean, I can I can remember being in my head, my body being like, I can't fucking do this for 10 more minutes. How is this going to go? We've only done like a third of the barn. I am completely broken. What is this crazy man making me do? I want to barf. I want to run. I want to scream, whatever. <laughs> right? You know, that panic, complete yeah. panic. That's suffering. <laughs> That's like, I'm not only not okay here, but I'm really not okay that I'm not okay. And I'm completely <laughs> not okay. And then... I mean, it's, it, it does, it feels almost mythic in my own memory. And then it's, there was some like, I think it was in watching him, you know, he was like two inches shorter than me, probably 80 pounds lighter than me, 40 years older than me, 50 years older than me. And the dude was, he was just, he's just an animal, you know, he just had that old man strength. He had that, yeah. like that spirit strength of spirit yeah. and my God. So something, I, something was passed on, right? Some some probably unhealthy Midwest work ethic was passed on in that moment where that suffering turned into, okay, yeah, my muscles are screaming and I do want to throw up, but you know what? I can hang out here. Yeah. I, I can hang with this. And that, actually that, that capacity, no matter what's happening, wild pleasure, big pain, total boredom, feeling lost, whatever it is, it's like, I can hang out here changes everything. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything. And I mean, the cool thing about that was to bring it back to that right of passage, like I respected the hell out of this guy and he cared for me. He respected me. You know, he was, he was working right alongside with me. He was kind, you know, he was a mentor, not in a verbal way, not an explicit way, but, but there was a bond. And so I wanted to do well and I wasn't going to bail, you know, there's no way. So I was kind of pinned in this situation to go through that shift. And it was, it was really beautiful. It was really beautiful and smelly. That's such a good story. And your, your willingness to lean into it and kind of uncover this stronger version of yourself and also your desire to, to show up for him and the example that he gave to you of, you know, here's, here's what we do when we work hard, the way that that was modeled to you. It was interesting. We had um, Juan Bandana on the show about a year and a half ago, and he's a good friend of Nate's, and he does, uh, they did Tony Robbins Global Youth Leadership Summit together, and he now goes and speaks on stages all over the world to mostly high school age and college students. And we said, what's the one thing that you think is really missing 
today with the youth that you speak to. And he said, effort, hmm. effort. I think effort is missing. So I think this is a really important message. It's something I, I think about all the time with, with my son, Jagger, you know, he's seven. And but how do I thread this needle between the parental role of wanting to keep your children safe and at the same time, this deep desire to push him out of his comfort zone and get him to grow and develop and meet his edges so he can discover more of himself and find more self-esteem. And it's, it's, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. What we just talked about is, is very much a, a, a life skill for, for work, for really a universal life skill, which is, which is how do we endure suffering and how do we work hard? Another really important critical life skill uh, for all of us is how do we make decisions? And since we're sitting with you, we'll do it through the lens of how do, how do men make decisions, right? So we feel that the quality of our decision-making is largely indicative of the quality of our life. Of course, there's some luck and circumstances and you know what situations we were born into, what are our traumas, et cetera. But our ability to make great decisions will inform the quality of, of our life. And we think this is also an increasingly important human skill as AI advances, because AI is really great at critical thinking about discrete problems, but it's not good at problem solving on the fly or giving advice or, or, or making, you know, the kinds of decisions that we as humans need to make. So I'd love to hear from you through all the work that you've done. What, what typically blocks men from making great decisions and, and what does a better decision making process look like? Overthinking is the answer to the first question. What typically blocks men from making decisions is uh, paralysis by analysis or getting stuck in their head. Or again, this, this phrase, figure it out, I just need to figure out, I'm going to figure it out. It rarely goes anywhere and it rarely goes well. And I would say this in the, in the business context too. I mean, obviously there's you know, great value in analysis and, and all that and so many things need that. Uh, but you know, the question I would ask is when, you, when a decision is necessary, you know, the one making the decision, the decider, in a sense, uh, my, my question to them is, is sort of where is this decision coming from and where should this decision be made from? And so what I mean by that is we have a tendency to think that our intelligence is all up here in, in just the, the rational portion of our head, which is just flatly wrong. And neuro, neuroscience and neurobiology has showed this very, very clearly our intelligence is, 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 a full, is a full creature event, right? And so having access to our intuition and our gut and our, our senses and our ability to, to be aware of other things and other people and all of these things, there's, you know, and I, I actually, I may do this more. I don't often specifically speak about intuition, but what I mean if I were to define that right now is just a, a, cell, a trust of sense or intelligence that is uh, different in quality or tone than, and I'm pointing here as I'm talking like up here, head, head decision, as opposed to this more deeper guttural sense of, of knowing, right? And, and there's far more uh, shades of this. It's, it's not so black and white in a sense, but I have found that one of the things that seems to hamper good decision-making is speed to action or speed to decision, right? Some decisions take, should take a long time to, to decipher, right? But uh, this might just be my personal preference, but my sense is like there's a whole lot of 
I would say actual suffering and not just discomfort that comes from not just trusting oneself, not having the confidence and not, and, and not having the willingness to screw up and make a bad decision. Right. I think if there's anything that, that I think I has supported me in my life is, is, you know, I made a lot of bad decisions <laughs> and like I deal with it. Right. And I, and I grow from it. I figure it out. So, but to bring this back to one slightly deeper layer, you know, back to kind of what I said, it's the distinction about self-care, about plugging into a, a deeper part of yourself, your emotions, your spirituality, your psychology, these things. I feel like so many men and business leaders have this sense that if a wrong decision is made, it all of a sudden means this, it has these terrible consequences yeah. to it, right? Yeah. And that's just not statistically real. Right. I mean, it can be, I mean, obviously you want to make good decisions, but, but I think there's this black or white mindset around a lot of decisions and it's, uh, it, it, it hampers a lot of things, right? It gets in the way. Yeah. Is it, was it Mark Twain? I'm not, I might butcher this quote, but was it Mark Twain who said, I'm a man who's known a great many grievances, most of which never happened or something like that, which is just <laughs> that inner, it's that inner nonsense, right? We, this turmoil, this noise that we, uh, deal with. I want to take Alex's question and push it forward into another place. Alex mentioned this idea blocks us. What what are the most common blocks and excuses that men use in your experience to avoid change? Consciously or unconsciously, they're just avoiding this. What are the excuses that they that they say? I would say the excuses are that they don't know back to that last, the last phrasing of that question, that they're not sure, right? They haven't figured it out. That uh, subconsciously, it's generally just fear, right? Fear of the unknown, fear of something different, fear of themselves, fear of what's actually happening. I'm trying to think of other explicit excuses. Guys aren't often, uh, when, when, by the time they get to me, uh, a lot of the excuses have been exhausted. So, so I, maybe I give a few minutes to hear them, but then, but then we're just like move, moving right beyond. Let's go. So, so, so it's like, all right, you came here for a reason. Like we're not, I'm not going to sit here and regurgitate yeah. your excuses over. Yeah. Uh, but most men live fairly isolated in their lives, right? And they're not sharing a whole lot of what they're actually thinking, feeling, and seeing with that many other people, right? And I think this is changing and hopefully maybe there's just a sense that it's understood that it's healthy to not just keep all of your world to yourself. But with that being true, I feel like it, it naturally causes it like a defense, right? So if, if you're on your own little island, you automatically kind of need to protect that. And that triggers, again, all of these things, identity, meaning, purpose, all, all of these things kind of get stacked along with that. I'm really glad you said that because I think that is a fundamental shift for men in my generation and absolutely for my kids, which is I watched my grandfather and my father lock everything inside and go into the cave and they just didn't talk. Like, yeah, something's wrong, obviously, but nobody knows what it is and I don't even think they know. And now we're in a place where coaching and therapy and internal work and journaling and what is going on inside? Let's make the unseen scene. Oh, now we can work with this thing. So I'm so, so glad that you said that. <laughs> well, and just a point to that. So in that scenario, I think it's important to point out 
what's dysfunctional about being in a cave and keeping things in there. One of the things that's dysfunctional about it is this head in the sand belief that other people can't tell and that it's not doing yeah. it harm. That's yeah. not doing harm. Like if you think, oh, I'm locking it in the cave, therefore I'm saving everybody from it. Uh-uh. No, no, sir. Not at all. It's just different, right? And so, again, I think this is becoming more commonly understood and, and makes sense to people. But I think that's, uh, there's still probably 7.2 million men that need to hear that yeah. locking it up does not serve others. Pearl of wisdom. You got to be talking. Find someone to talk to to get it out. Um, let's take that now to this question. 7.2 million men out of the workforce. There are as many as 15 factors contributing to that cocktail. But what are the top, I don't know, two or three things that you think could help get these men back in the game? Get them off the sidelines. Let's go get back in the game. Well, I'll tell you the first thing that comes to mind, and it's very clear, is I think we're in just such a vacuum of positive male leadership that, that, that uh, who's, 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 who is going to be giving this message? Who's yes. going to be rousing the troops? Who's going to be calling people yes. off the bench, right? And, I'm, and I'm, I'm willing, maybe I'm kind of working toward it. I'm not sure. It's, it's going to be many people. It's not just one. It's, maybe it's a cultural movement. I'm not sure what it is. And I think maybe it's partly happening, but I think that's the first thing. Is there, like, I actually just had an experience um, on my new podcast. I, I was uh, interviewed a man named Stephen Jenkinson, and uh, he's, he's an elder. Probably, I'll just flatly say one of the wisest human beings I've ever come across. And the podcast, which was just going to be an interview, ended up being him reducing me, seeing through all my questions and literally just sort of giving me uh, a dose of fathering, a dose of like guidance, a dose of understanding that I just didn't even know I was looking for. And I was looking for it desperately. Mm. And so that needs to happen over and over and over and over and over and over for men. Like they're, they're, we need leadership. We need guidance. Men need leadership and guidance. They need a call to action through an individual or an entity or something that makes sense that they can step up into. You know, and I pay a lot of attention to the landscape. You know, who do men pay attention to? Joe Rogan and The Rock and Jordan Peterson and and liberal people and non-liberal people. And, you know, it's just like you can see what it is. And what I'm always curious about is what would it take to, to garner respect and following and all of this, but then go that next step? And some of these men do. I mean, so some of these figures do, some of these thought leaders do. But I am, you know what, I, I was going to say this earlier, but there's something that I often go back to in my thoughts, and that's the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps that came up through uh, Franklin Roosevelt's presidency. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, but there was a generation. Was this of, part of the New Deal? There's a generation of young men, unemployed, underused, not sure what to do, and they saw it as a crisis. So the government put together the Civilian Conservation Corps and put hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of men to work building infrastructure, building roads, building highways, building parks, building all of, the, all of these things. And I just bring that up as, as sort of where my mind goes when I muse about this. Like, what would it take to catch the attention of men? What would it take to, to mobilize, in a sense? I feel maybe I'm straying off your question a little bit here, but I want to go back to my simple answer. And that's leadership. And I think that's a really, it's a scary moment in time to do that, I believe. Because making a stand, putting, I mean, the amount of contention and battery 
that most people take, you know, in this world, when you try to take a stand for something, it's, it's, it's real, right? I think that's, that's, that's where it starts. And then I think that what that leadership implies is something to care about, something to work toward, a problem to fix, a, uh, a, a, a movement to join, right? S- something that, that means something enough to, to centralize around. So those are very related, but those are my, my initial answers. For uh, that's, that's great. The last question we have before we take this into a speed round is kind of related to what we were just talking about because you were, in some ways, annexing these concepts of, of leadership and fatherhood for young men. Um, and in your new podcast, which is fantastic, and everybody needs to go and listen to that immediately, you say, I believe that a father's love is the biggest missing vitamin on the planet. Dan, what is your vision for fully embodied fatherhood? Yeah, well, let me qualify that for a second. And, and that, that sentence comes from a, uh, what I see as a very important book from the feminist writer Bell Hooks in the 90s uh, called A Will to Change. And there's a lot in there, but the basic thesis is that root cause of a lot of societal, planetary, familial, individual issues is the lack of male love, the lack of receiving and free-flowing male love, which is, if I were to really narrow down my deepest platform, it's, it's that. It really is that. And so my vision would be that men take it upon themselves to, to become as, as, as human as they can fully human and, and exercise the parts of our lives, parts of ourselves that are, you know, that have been sort of habituated out of us. And in doing so, the vision would be like, if I were to get aspirational about it would be that, you know, your colleague or boss or supervisor at work in a position of power over you just knows who you are and is, and is like aligned and caring as he pushes you or she pushes you as as you drive for success and growth that there's that there is a requisite amount of of care and compassion that's balanced it looks like it looks like coming home to your to your children after a day at work and having worked out how to how to slow down and and drop in and let work fly out the back window and just be there and and just just be there right just let your let the normal, natural, primal, instinctual connection, dad stuff out. It's there, right? We don't have to learn all that. It's just there. So it's just, it's more of a case of, can we let go? Can we let go of the boxes and the worries and the concepts? And can we just be more human? It's a work and home. And I mean, you know, in that part is an individual too, is, is a, a sober and sane conception of self that actually makes sense, that actually works, that that's functional, that, that isn't some insane hyper growth oriented thing that, that just puts us in a, in a squeeze our entire life and, and turns us on ourselves and turns us on each other. And if I were to play this out on a larger scale, it means that we just grow up and realize where we are and confront the situation of our world as it is, micro and macro. And we, we are more in connection. We just are more in connection. What does our neighborhood need? What does my child need? What does nature need? What, is, what, 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 what does our country actually need? Like just being actually in relationship with things 
and get off this crazy fucking trip that we're on and be mature, be, be a, a mature, bring that mature energy that, that can like handle the chaos. That's what's going on and do his, just simply do his best to get through it and to care for others and to look forward at the future and, and, you know, be proactive. I guess it goes back to, honestly, I guess it has to do with what you asked me earlier, like be intentional, slow down, be intentional. Let's see what we might do with this world. If, if we were more sane and sober and mature about it. Dan, I think a through line of what you're saying or that I'm hearing for sure is if you're just engaged, right, that you can be in service. And if you're engaged and in service, a lot of really good things are just going to start to unfold, not only for you, but for the world around you. But in taking it back to the cave, as long as we're locked up in the cave and we're sort of isolated, nothing good is going to come from that. But when we can just get re-engaged in any way, it doesn't even matter, just get engaged and be in service, then the good things will start to come. Yeah, I think so. Good things and bad things, but, but definitely more honest. Real things, right? Real, Real things. things, yeah. Real things. Let's do this speed round. We're going to take you into a set of questions and um, we'd like you to just answer with your gut. We're going to move fast and you say whatever's true for you and we'll have some fun with this. Cool. All right, first question. What is one of the hardest lessons you've ever learned? Uh, that, I'm, that I'm not the center of the universe. <laughs> uh, where do you see the future of men's work going in this increasingly digital world? I hope it, it goes in person and uh, service oriented. I actually would be really excited to refresh like the old school uh, men's organizations that have service in mind, but do the, the necessary inner work to make that really work well. Awesome. So we're in a moment that we call AI everywhere. This is the biggest invention since the internet, as far as we're concerned. What excites you and scares you about AI? What excites me is the possibility of more time in my garden and out in the <laughs> woods and with my children, really. What scares me is that I don't know that that's going to happen and being sucked into the digital landscape. Uh, I'm scared that that's just inevitable. I only have one vision ever. And this was from Terrence McKenna, the psilocybin philosopher. He had this vision of, you know, living these very earth-based, you know, growing your own food lives, basically like hobbits, but then, then kind of going in, put, putting on your VR headset and doing all of your commerce and work in there and, that's the only like sort of data point I have to think that there's a balance possible. But what's something that's a total waste of time that you completely love? <laughs> that I completely love? A total waste of time that I completely love. <laughs> I shouldn't say this one out loud, but imagining <laughs> imagining myself in other lives, like having made different choices. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Last one. Dan, what are you most proud of? I'm proud of, externally, I'm most proud of my wife uh, being, being with her uh, through having three children and just witnessing what that actually means uh, for her and her body and her soul. It's the most humbling thing that I, I can say. What I'm most proud of for myself is um, that I keep showing up, that I, that, that, I, that, I keep, that I continue to follow this inner compass 
that that I've been tracking for a while, as opposed to uh, as opposed to not. That's beautiful, Dan. Thank you so much for for honoring us and being here today for all the love that you're putting out into the world, for all the leadership you're putting out into the world, for all the fathering that you're doing for your family and for all the men that are in need of fathering that you you give them in some way, shape, or form. You're, you're such a beautiful human man, and it's just fantastic to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. This was a joy. Appreciate it. Where can people find you? Yeah, on the web, it's dandoty.com, D-A-N-D-O-T-Y.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram. It's underscore Dan Doty underscore. Yeah. Midwestern Dan Doty with the Dan Doty handle who, who I think he makes, uh, uh, like cellos or something. I'm coming for you, man. Try to get that Dan Doty. And you can find me, uh, yeah, out in the, out in the woods, out in the woods. I don't, don't find me there, but I'm not saying that. Because you're armed. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm naked and howling at the moon. You don't. I'm naked and howling yes, at the moon. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.